They follow this pony for 200 miles um, through mountainous trails and down into a city called Kentung and it turned into the gate of a nearby compound headed straight for a well. And the pony stops beside the well. Puchan's disciples look in all directions. They don't see a white brother. They don't see a book. But they hear something Inside the well, this is told by a lady named Nelda, Nelda Widland, and she says that the Wa tribesmen heard sounds coming from the well. They looked down into the well, and peering up at them is a very white face with a very bushy beard and two very blue eyes. And he says to them, welcome. Hello, strangers. How may I help you? His name was William Marcus Young, and he is the lady who's telling this story's grandfather. So she knows this story from her grandfather. He climbs out of the well, which he was in the process of digging, as he brushes the dust from his hands and, and faced this group of people who were following this pony. The messengers, the Wa messengers said, have you brought a book from God? He nods, and the Wa men, overcome with emotion, fell at his feet, blurted out the message of the dream of Puchan, and they said, this pony is saddled especially for you. Our people are all waiting. Fetch the book. We must be on our way. And the youngs and their local colleagues baptized over 10,000 Wa men and women who then continued to spread the message of the Bible throughout Burma and southwestern China. Could it be that God is at work even before we are on the scene in people's lives all around us? It's interesting. In the mysterious language of the New Testament, it kind of goes like this. Um, from the book of Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God was choosing people before the foundation of the world, it says. And so it's not a surprise that God is already at work. <clears throat> Excuse me. It seems he has been long at work in the lives of those who would be his even before we or missionaries arrive on the scene. You know, this year our, our kind of overarching priority for the church is expressed in this simple phrase, bought. That we belong to Christ. And we'll be exploring that in and out throughout the year and thinking about the ramifications of that as, as we taught a couple weeks ago. But as we think about what it means for us to be purchased by God through Jesus' cross work, um, could it be that he has also purchased others who are in your school, who are where you work, who live in your neighborhood, who live maybe in places far, far from here where the name of Christ is yet to be named? You might, you might think, not likely. Uh, you don't know my neighbors. <laughs> or you might think it's highly unlikely. You've never been to my school. And I would say, exactly. Because 
it seems like when we least expect it, amongst a tribe of headhunters, for instance, in the story we just heard, God is at work in and through the unlikeliest of people in the most surprising places. And the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today in our study of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, is one of those stories. It is a classic case of God at work in the unlikeliest of people in the most surprising of places. So if you will open up your Bible to Joshua chapter 2, we'll continue the study that Kevin Lott, uh, one of our church planners, started last week for us in the book of Joshua. And I would like to pray for us along those lines. So bow with me as you find your way, please. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Um, we can read the words of the Bible, and sometimes they just don't have the impact that you want them to have. And so we want to submit to the work of your Spirit this morning that they might bring to us all that you intend them to bring, all the hope and all the mercy and all the insight into who you are and how you work. So help us now, Lord, by your Spirit and your Word, we pray. Amen. Let me give you a little background to our story in case you weren't here last week. Um, the nation of Israel had been dramatically rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Um, you remember the stories. You're familiar with them. They've been made into movies. The, the ten plagues, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. And after their rescue, they became rebellious and as a result, wandered around the desert for 40 years before they finally uh, arrive on the verge of entering the land that God had promised them. We call it the promised land, the land of Canaan. And uh, that land that they're about to enter, this is, and the book of Joshua is going to document their entrance into the land and their possession of it, it's God's gift to his people. It, it's the fulfillment of a promise, as we'll see, that was given to Abraham hundreds of years before. It was a promise to bless his people with a land of their own. And uh, it's been called the great symbol of God's blessing upon a people who were wanderers, who, who had no home, no place. And... Uh, Land was, in a sense, the most valuable currency in their day. And for God to give these homeless wanderers a, a land that was their own, it's the most tangible symbol of God's loving blessing upon his people. And they are on the verge of, of having it. Right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that comes before Joshua, they're on the verge of entering this promise that God had given to them. And then... Um, their great leader, Moses, dies. And as Professor Dale Davis puts it, he says, what do you have left when everything the first books of the Bible have been preparing you for ends in a funeral? Right? That just doesn't seem like the way it ought to work. But he goes on and he answers his own question as he paraphrases really what's the hope of the book of Joshua. He says, Moses may die. God's promise lives on. It's not contingent on Moses. So in, in chapter 1, we saw last week when Kevin taught us, in place of Moses, Joshua is commissioned to lead the people into the fullness of God's promise and blessing for them, the land. Um, and so they're on the verge of crossing the River Jordan and entering 
tangibly into the fulfillment of the promise of God. And at the start of our passage then, Joshua does something that he's really familiar with. Um, His experience with this, he sends out spies. Look uh, at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Because, see, Joshua knows spying. He was one once. Um, and he was good at it. There's a fascinating account of his escapades as a spy in the book of Numbers in chapter 13 and 14. It would be a fabulous afternoon read today. Um, just sit back, read Numbers 13 and 14. You'll learn a lot about Joshua, uh, who he is as a man, and what his mission was as a spy. Um, But after he sends out the spies, this is where our story takes a really unexpected twist. Uh, Look again at the end of verse 1. It says, Those spies went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho went to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Okay, so if you're reading this story for the first time, you kind of go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, Somebody's got some splaining to do. What are two good Jewish boys doing in a pagan brothel? Okay, (laughs) this is not what Joshua had in mind, I don't think, when he sent out spies. Um, Now, it's possible that she, uh, Rahab, this was not necessarily a brothel, but it could have been a tavern or an inn where certain kinds of business took place. Um, But regardless of that, what are two good Jewish boys doing in a place like this? Um, It is doubtful. Um, The Hebrew scholars that I read say it's doubtful that they were clients that the language that's used here is careful not to imply that that's why they were there. Okay. Um, what are they doing there? And, you know, I think it's a pretty good cover. Where, I mean, where's the last place you're going to look for two good Jewish boys? At a pagan brothel, right? So it's probably a pretty good place in that regard. Um, it's not like they're hanging out at the local kosher deli. Um, It's also a really good place to do some reconnaissance and information. If this is a kind of tavern, people talk. They can get information sitting around the tables, listening to the conversation. But even if they were pretty shrewd about their choice of a stakeout, they seem to have blown entirely the whole covert op thing because Jericho's king knows that they are there. It seems almost like the first day they're there. And uh, he is searching them out. And this is when things get even more surprising. Look at verse 4. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So Rahab shelters the spies from the king, 
which would put her at no small risk, I would think. Um, and it's, it's possible that this is even how they ended up at her establishment in the first place. If they were, in fact, not very good spies in terms of their being covert, and she saw that they were strangers in the city, and there were rumors swirling that there were two um, Jewish spies in the city, she may have met them on the street, invited them to her home, hid them there as part of the whole, um, her whole evidence of faith uh, that's going to play out here. But spoiler alert, okay, because of this act of kindness to these spies... Rahab is rescued in Joshua chapter 6 when the rest of the city falls. And in the New Testament, she is honored for this act of faith. Hebrews 11, when we studied Hebrews last year, we ran into this. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And, and James honors her in the New Testament too. Uh, James 2 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You know, Rahab is even included in the genealogy of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. God thinks highly of Rahab the prostitute, it seems. And her faith, as she's evidencing here. But now some of you are thinking about this. And you may be thinking, but she lied. Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? She lied. What's she doing in Hebrews 11 and in James 2 and in the lineage of the Messiah? Um, and of course, that raises a really sticky question. Is it ever right for a Christian to lie? Um, you know, can you lie when a guy asks you out and you don't want to go, so you're polite and you make up an excuse? Um, can you lie to your boss about a coworker's whereabouts in order to protect them from getting fired? Can you lie to protect spies that are hiding on your roof from the king of your city? Uh, these are difficult questions. Can you lie for the good of another? Um, and again, I, I like what... Professor Dale Davis says in perspective, he says, this incidentally tells us what the writer is not concerned about. He is not very interested in picky ethical questions, endless wranglings and discussions about whether it was right for Rahab to lie to the Jericho police and so on. It is tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibble endlessly about the matter, and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth. And he points out, naturally the New Testament does not fall into this trap. It consistently stresses the faith of Rahab. So, this is not the point. Okay? Don't snag your pants. Okay? This is not the point of the passage um, to teach about that. But having said that, you know, it's a question we have about how to follow Christ. It's worth thinking about, and lots of people have thought about it. Um, I'll post you a really helpful article this week on our, on our leader blog by a man named David Howard. He's written a commentary on, on Joshua. He says, in Rahab's case, then she should not have told a lie. Since the Bible is very clear about lying, it roots truth-telling in God's very nature because he is truth, and he cannot lie. Truth comes from God, and his word is truth, as we are to be holy because God is holy, so we are to be truthful because he is truthful. Lying is uniformly condemned, 
both in the Old and the New Testaments. He says, a careful reading shows that nowhere is Rahab's lie per se commended. Her faith is rightly commended, and her actions in helping the spies are as well. The James passage seems especially explicit. It mentions two actions, giving lodging to the spies, sending them out by a safer route. It does not mention Rahab's lying or even her protection of the men accomplished by the lie. John Calvin long ago said, those who hold what is called a doubtful, a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose be to assist our brethren to lie for someone else's good, to consult for their safety and relieve them, it never can be lawful to lie because that cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God and God is truth. Now, we are fortunate in our church, and I am blessed on our elder team to have um, a top drawer uh, ethicist uh, on our team. So I, I asked Mark Lederbach about these things, and Mark is good to me. He gives me the bottom line. That's what Mark says. God is truth. God hates liars. This is clear in Scripture. Right? <laughs> you get, so run with that, people. Okay? That's it's, it's probably the counsel we need. Rahab here is a brand new believer, right? She's a she comes from a culture of pagans who worship many gods. She's fresh out of polytheistic paganism. She's taking remarkable steps of faith here for a new believer, but it's highly doubtful that her lying is one of them. Um, so should you fall into a lie, repent and don't blame Rahab. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, verse 7, the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So this is great. You talk about a, talk about a jam. Um, the spies have been found out. The king is after them. His agents are knocking at the door where they're hiding. And it's a brothel, by the way. Good luck explaining that to mom when you get back. And now the gates are closed. They're trapped in the city on the roof of the brothel. Now, spoiler alert number two, as we'll see in a minute, Rahab comes to their rescue yet again. And she's going to provide a way of escape, a rescue for the spies from the gated city. But what happens first reveals that an even more amazing rescue has taken place. Look, look at what she says in verses 8 through 11. Look closely at, at what Rahab professes to believe. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, and whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters in your Bible, that stands for Yahweh, the, the personal name of our God. Okay? I know that Yahweh, she says, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard... How the Lord, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And this is a stunning confession of faith in God. Okay. And it is done by a Canaanite harlot. 
She is from a pagan people who worship many gods. She has had no known prior contact with any of God's people. She seems to have believed this even before the spies came. And yet she confesses a profound faith in the one true God. She even uses his name. She believes that Yahweh, as she says it, Yahweh has given the land, her people's land, to Israel. And she confesses that her people, the people of Jericho and all the land of Canaan, are terrified of Yahweh. She says, the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away. She says it twice. We melt away before you. And this seems to be the simple basis of her faith. Somehow, she has heard of Yahweh's great works, crushing the enemies of his people and thereby their gods. And in particular, she heard about the victory over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, when Yahweh displayed his power over creation, parted the waters for his people to pass through. And it's, it's really fascinating. This fear that she's describing was predicted, it was foretold back in the book of Exodus when the parting of, after the parting of the Red Sea happened. Listen to what Exodus 15 says. It's a, it's a song and a prayer to God. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes their leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan, of Canaan, the promised land, have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them, it says. And it's an interesting thing, an eerily similar situation of another miraculous river crossing is about to happen as Israel crosses the Jordan. And, and they are realizing a river is no safeguard from this God. It's interesting, too, that now Rahab is effectively spying for the spies against her own people. Um, she is reporting on her own people, telling the spies that they are terrified because they have heard Yahweh defeats his enemies this way, by powerfully wielding creation at the Red Sea and by conquering even giants. This king, uh, King Sihon and King Og, King Og was considered to be a giant. Some estimates were that he might be 9 to 13 feet tall. And so, um, you know, they hear about this. And these victories strike fear into their hearts. And, and Rahab shares that fear. But in her, it leads to a remarkable confession of faith in the one true God. Look at verse 11. This is really the high point of our passage. As soon as we heard it, she says, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She calls Yahweh the God of the spies, the God of heavens above and earth below. And David Howard says that Rahab stated that Israel's God, Yahweh, was indeed the only God. 
The Lord your God is God. Yahweh was the true God's personal name, just as Baal or Asherah or Marduk or Ishtar were the personal names of Canaanite and Babylonian gods. Thus, when Rahab stated that Yahweh your God is God, she was stating that Baal, Asherah, and the rest were not true gods. And the phrase, in the heavens above and the earth below, is found only three times prior to this, he says. All of them in context that affirms God's exclusive claims and sovereignty. And here's the one that's closest in parallel to what she says. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's, uh, Moses actually says this. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And so when Rahab uses this kind of language, she is saying that only Israel's God controls the destiny of the whole world. Because she believes that to be true, she seeks protection from his judgments in his mercy. And Rahab the harlot has become the first Canaanite convert to faith in Yahweh, it seems. Verse 12 continues, she says, Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So out of faith in God's power, right, and concern for her family, she strikes a deal with the spies that will place her and all her household under Yahweh's mercy. So she doesn't just make this beautiful confession about Yahweh. She hopes and trusts in him her whole family's well-being is at his mercy. In verse 15, Then she let them down a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then afterward you may go your way. So Rahab is still not finished serving Yahweh's spies. She literally provides for them the way of escape. She holds the rope for them, in a sense, from this now gated city. And she also continues to guide and guard the spies with more counsel that's going to prove to be spot on. She's going to tell them, don't go back to the Jordan directly. That's where the, the spies, will, that's where the, the party will look that's looking for you, the hunting party. Go away into the hills, she says. And so the spies then grant her request, and they say, the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And they're, they're making clear now the terms of the deal. Men said to her, we will be guiltless with excuse me, in verse 19, it says, If anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath, 
that you have made us swear. And you get a sense how seriously they take an oath like this. Right? They are, before, you almost get a sense, it's like they're hanging in the bucket outside the window, the basket, right? And they're saying, let's get the deals. You know, let's get this straight here. Um, they want the terms of the deal settled, and Rahab is glad to agree. She says, verse 21, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she ties this scarlet cord in the window. And, uh, you know, uh, preachers have had a field day with the scarlet cord, right? Now, all that it represents and means. And Scripture directly doesn't really attach any significance to it. But um, it does, in my mind, bear a beautiful resemblance to something that happened in the book of Exodus when they were about to be delivered from slavery. And they took that that blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorpost you remember that and and the whole household then would be delivered uh, from the terrible tenth plague um, which that was a clear pointer to the work of saving work of Christ as our sacrificial lamb who gave his blood and um, this this scarlet cord that protects the household kind of reminds me of that though scripture doesn't call it out in that way verse 22 they departed and they follow her counsel. They went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way, found nothing. And then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. So they follow her guidance. They go to the hills. Her counsel is good. The plan works. They're kept safe. And they return and give a report to Joshua in verse 24. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And so they are confirming that now the promise of God given long ago to Abraham is about to be fulfilled. Back, way back in the book of Genesis, it says to Abram, um, who would later be Abraham, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Truly, they said, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. The long-awaited promise is being fulfilled. And you notice that they use Rahab's words. It's like she wrote the report for the spies. The same, same words she used. They melt away because of us. She's their source for the report now. So back up and think about this story. What has happened here? Um, it is really a remarkable story of the most unlikely faith. The spies find confirmation of the promise of God in the most unlikely of places from the unlikeliest people. They find it from a pagan prostitute in a brothel in a city facing the judgment of God. And out of that entire city, she is the only one in the city whose fear of God leads her to seek shelter in God. She is the first Canaanite convert to faith in God, and it's the unlikeliest imaginable. And I, I, can't, I can't imagine that when the spies were sent out, this is what they thought they would find when they went to scout Jericho. 
If someone had told them, okay, when you get to Jericho, there's going to be this prostitute, and she's going to seek you out and hide you on her roof. And not only that, she will be the one who will plan your escape and help you get out of the city and plot your route to get back to us safely. I think they would have said, yeah, right. Not likely. Highly unlikely. You really don't know much about Canaanite harlots, do you? Um, But God was at work in Rahab's life even before they arrived. She had heard the accounts of the works of God. I don't know how. Rumors. Stories of the great works of God, and she believed them. She believed in the God who performed them. And so, as we conclude today, I want you to think, do you have a friend like this? Someone who seems the least likely of anyone to believe in God. Someone that you kind of thought, well, not, not him, not, not her. There's a guy, his name is... Um, Nabil Qureshi. And he tells his story this way. He says, Allahu Akbar. I bear witness that there is no God but Allah. I bear witness that Muhammad is the message of Allah, messenger of Allah. He said, These are the first words of the Muslim call to prayer. They were also the first words ever spoken to me. Moments after I was born, I had been told my father softly recited them in my ear as his father had done for him and as all my forefathers had done for their sons since the time of Muhammad. We are Qureshis, he says, descendants of the Quresh tribe, Muhammad's tribe. Our family stood sentinel over Islamic tradition. The words my ancestors passed down to me were more than ritual. They came to define my life as a Muslim in the West. Every day I sat next to my mother as she taught me to recite the Quran in Arabic. Five times a day I stood behind my father as he led our family in congregational prayer. At age five, I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic. At age five. And memorized, at age five, the last seven chapters. By age 15, I had committed the last 15 chapters of the Quran to memory in both English and Arabic. Every day I recited countless prayers in Arabic, thanking Allah for another day upon waking, invoking his name before falling asleep. He says, though, as a freshman at Old Dominion University in Virginia, I was befriended by a sophomore, David Wood, and soon after he extended a helping hand, I found him reading a Bible. I was incredulous that someone as clearly intelligent as he would actually read Christian sacred text. And so I launched into a barrage of apologetic attacks from questioning the reliability of Scripture to denying Jesus' crucifixion to, of course, challenging the Trinity and the deity of Christ. He says, but David didn't react like other Christians. He said, he did not waver in his witness. He did not waver in his friendship with me. Far from it, he became even more engaged, answering the questions he could respond to, investigating the questions he couldn't respond to, and spending time with me through it all. After three years of investigating the origins of Christianity, I concluded that the case for Christianity was strong and that the Bible could be trusted and that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and claimed to be God. He said, then my friend David challenged me to study Islam as critically as I had studied Christianity. And I had learned about Muhammad from imams and from my parents, but not from the historical sources. So when I finally read the sources, I found that Muhammad was not the man I had thought. 
Violence and sensuality dripped from the pages of his earliest biographies, the life stories of the man I revered as the holiest in history. Shocked by what I learned, I began to lean on the Quran as my defense, but when I turned an eye there, that foundation crumbled just as quickly, and I relied on its miraculous knowledge and perfect preservation as a sign that it was inspired by God, but both beliefs faltered. Overwhelmed and confused by the evidence for Christianity and the weakness of the Islamic case, I began seeking Allah for help. Or was he Jesus? I didn't know any longer. I needed to hear from God himself who he was. Thankfully, growing in a Muslim community, I had seen others implore Allah for guidance. And the way that Muslims expect to hear from God is through dreams and visions. And in the summer after graduating from Old Dominion, I began imploring God daily, tell me who you are. If you are Allah, show me how to believe in you. If you are Jesus, tell me. Whoever you are, I will follow you no matter what the cost. He says, by the end of my first year in medical school, God had given me a vision and three dreams. And eventually, he says, I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I love most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made. It is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus, he says, is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeemed sinners to life by his death. And he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. It was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. He reached me through my investigations, dreams, and visions, and called me to prayer in my suffering. It was there that I found Jesus. To follow him is worth giving up everything like that. Do you have a family member? that you've written off, that you think, not that one. <laughs> Uncle Harry is not the one. He's not going to believe. Um, or maybe there's a place in the world like that. Maybe you think that, that the Muslims are not going to respond. Or maybe there's a place in society like that, that, that certain kinds of people who do certain things are not going to be open, that God couldn't be at work there. At the height of his worldwide fame, this guy, <laughs> rock musician Alice Cooper. This will probably be the only time I'll quote Alice Cooper in a sermon. Um, <laughs> he drank a bottle of whiskey a day, a bottle of whiskey a day, but the bottle had almost destroyed his marriage to Cheryl, his wife of 25 years, so he started heading off to church with her. You imagine if, if that walked into North Wake, wouldn't that be a joy? <laughs> That would be so cool. He started heading off to church with her. And he said he felt as if God was speaking to him every Sunday. He became a believer in Jesus. And now he talks to curious fellow musicians about the reality of the devil and the change in his life. This is what he says. He says, I have talked to some big stars about this, some really horrific characters, and you'd be surprised, he says. And this is what he says. He says, the ones that you would think are the farthest gone, gone are the ones that are the most apt to listen. The ones that you would think are the farthest gone are the ones that are the most apt to listen. And maybe you think about you like that. Maybe you think you've done too much stuff, you've got too much baggage, and that God could never welcome you. And you don't, here's the thing. There were lots and lots of people in Jericho. I don't know how many. But I think they could have escaped the coming destruction the same way Rahab did. 
All they had to do was believe and confess the power of God to rescue them. And so that's the invitation today. Would you believe that God has the power and the mercy that's needed even to rescue you? And that he accomplished that through the great demonstration of his love in Christ on the cross for you. Would you believe that that's enough even for you? Even for you. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we pray, we ask for mercy because we believe you are merciful and that there is an amazing grace that's greater than our sins. The worst of us, the worst of what we've done, we sing Jesus paid it all and we confess that. And so I I pray for us that we would believe that your grace is greater than our darkest sin. And I pray for those today who have resisted that for whatever reason, that today would be the day they say yes to you. And they place their faith in a God who would become a man and die on a cross in their place to bear their sin because he loved them so. So Lord, have mercy on us all. We confess that you are good and merciful even to the most unlikely of us. And this we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. Let's declare the goodness and the mercy of our Father together.